One of the most vexing clinical situations in breast cancer is the patient with a basaloid triple negative tumor, and Dr. Atif Hussein presented such a case to Drs. Blum and Tripathy. My patient is a 56-year-old postmenopausal woman. She underwent a left breast lumpectomy for a 3.1 centimeter moderately differentiated infiltrating ductal carcinoma. ER0, PR0, HER2 news 0. Negative margins with 3 out of 12 positive axillary lymph nodes. The surgery was done in November 2004. The PET-CT fusion scan postoperatively was negative for metastatic disease, left ventricular ejection fraction normal. At that time, I treated her with TAC, taxotere, adriacytoxin, chemotherapy plus pegfilgrastrim for six cycles. She actually treated that well except for some fluid retention at the end and some fatigue. She finished the chemotherapy in March 2005, then received radiation therapy to the left breast. She did well between March 05 and October 05 when her CEA and CA15-3 started increasing. At that time, a CT scan revealed the presence of several lesions actually in both lobes of the liver, the largest 1.6 centimeter. She was completely asymptomatic with normal liver function tests. She's performance status excellent, no other medical problems. She's a real estate agent. She really dealt with the chemo well. She, of course, was shocked at the recurrence. Can you talk a little bit about your experience and practice with women who recur, particularly recurring so quickly after going through the whole experience of chemotherapy and how you help them deal with that? Yeah, this is tough. I mean, this is a patient with triple negative tumor. Now we know enough that these patients, you worry about them a lot, especially the first two to three years. They feel you are not doing anything for them after the sixth cycle. This is really, is like, what do you mean you are done and you are going to see me in two to three months? And actually, I try to wean them off, to be honest with you. From now on, I usually see these patients six weeks and then another six weeks and two months because I know this is going to come back. And if not, they are going to keep calling me. Therefore, to abort that whole process, I just do it that way. But usually it takes several months. This lady actually wanted to go back to be normal. She had her port removed, although I like to keep it a year or two in this patient. She refused. She had it removed. But that's usually the psyche of these patients. Can you talk about her family situation, her lifestyle? She is married. Her husband works. She is a real estate agent. They have two grown-up girls, one in high school and one in college. Joanne, you want to talk a little bit about how you might think through treatment in this situation? Well, you've highlighted the poor prognostic features that this patient had with the basal phenotype breast cancer. You mentioned that you did a PET scan. There was a report at ASCO looking at screening scans, and I just wanted to bring it up that the PET scans were felt to be useless, and there was only one out of all of the ones done that showed something that wasn't identified in another screening study. So the conclusion of the study was that it's not cost-effective to do PET scans screening. The other issue is that the ASCO guidelines really speak against using screening tumor markers, and I've changed my practice, and I don't do them anymore because it doesn't find disease that you can cure. So I've dropped doing that. Would you do a liver biopsy in this patient? Yes, I would. I usually make a tissue diagnosis to confirm metastatic disease. Yeah, this is six months after stopping This patient, I think I would be less inclined to, but in general, I like to have a tissue confirmation. In terms of therapy at this point in time, I think my regimen that I've studied, the capecitabine paclitaxel, would be a reasonable regimen to use. It's fairly well tolerated. We had a fair number of patients with visceral disease. Capecitabine does have activity in 
liver metastatic disease. It's well tolerated. She had docetaxel, so she might respond to paclitaxel. So I would probably use doublet therapy for this patient first, given the visceral disease. Tabu? I agree with that. I think this is someone who has a good performance status, is asymptomatic, but the trajectory of their disease may be such that the best shot at getting a longer remission would be with combination therapy. I typically use single-agent therapy, but this is someone where I'd consider it. This is a patient in which paclitaxel bevacizumab may be a good option. She saw docetaxel and has visceral disease, triple negative not that bevacizumab seems to be more active in that subset versus other subsets, but that's another option that could be entertained. Although she's recurring six months after completing it, and I guess in the trial you had to have it going beyond a year. That's correct. Another doublet that could be considered would be paclitaxel gemcitabine. Again, having seen a taxane within six months is an issue as well, seven months, but that would be another combination. And there's many other doublets. I don't think there's any doublet that stands head or shoulders above the others. There's gemcitabine, venerelbine, there's capcitabine, venerelbine. Those are two others, even gemcitabine platinum. Right, or carboplatin, paclitaxel. Right. What do we know about the response to chemotherapy in triple negative patients, Joanne? Well, there's a little bit of data, but it's mostly in vitro data that there may be some sensitivity to platinum compounds. So some have hypothesized that using either cisplatinum or carboplatin plus another agent might be reasonable. But I haven't really seen any clinical trial data to support this yet. I don't know if you've seen any. It's just been seen in cell lines. There's also been a hypothesis that the EGFR mechanism may be at play in these patients as well, but there isn't data from clinical trials to support that yet. Tibu, would you send this woman's tumor for a second pathologic opinion for the ER and HER2? Well, if both of these were done at a lab that is high volume and reliable, I really don't see any compelling reason to send the original. Now, the issue of a recurrence and whether that might convert is another issue. And as there is more literature on patients that are recurring, we are seeing that what was originally HER2 negative now recurs as HER2 positive. We published a study looking at circulating cells where it was high, and then other people have published with biopsies. But these studies are small. Most of them didn't go back and get the original primary and retest it, and we know that the techniques that were used several years ago may not be as good as the techniques today. So there's still a lot of other explanations other than clonal selection or conversion. I don't know that I'd put this patient through a biopsy because she has liver disease, but if she had a more accessible tumor, I probably would. Is there a high volume disease in the liver? No, she had around three lesions in the right lobe, two in the left. They were really small, except the one large one. And we went through the whole issues we are discussing now, really, actually. We just came from ASCO. I spoke to her about the Avastin. Although I was still trying to understand it, she really did not fit the criteria of the study. And although I would not hold treatment because of cost, I thought, you know what? She really does not fit the one year. I spoke to her about a doublet. She just had a port removed. The doublet I wanted to give her was capecitabine and nevelbine, since she hasn't seen them. And because of her hair, you're absolutely right. But she refused to have a port put in. And she told me, why don't we start with a single agent? for three, four cycles, and then I will consent to a port, and then you give me nevelbine if there is no response. So she was concerned also about her hair? Yes. Had it regrown already? Most of it, actually, yes. And that was a difficult experience for her? Yes. I mean, she goes out there, she goes with customers, and she didn't want to go through it that soon. 
Do you think that she accepted and understood what was going on in terms of the long-term prognosis here? Absolutely. She really is. I mean, she modified her work schedule. She scheduled trips. And that's why I didn't push for weekly chemotherapy with her. And she had so many trips since then, actually. And we fit in the capsitabine because that was my choice. I started her on 1,000 milligram per meter square twice a day and for two weeks with one week off when she came back, her creatinine is normal, her LFTs are normal, she had no GI symptoms, but she had a noticeable moderate hand foot syndrome that the patient was bothered by it. Because of that, the second cycle, I reduced the dose by 15%. I didn't really want to go down a lot. I went down to 850 BID, and actually after two cycles, her markers went down. That's why I delayed the CT scan until four cycles. And actually, after four cycles, the tumor volume, based on the few lesions we could measure, went down volume-wise, not resist criteria really, by 40%. And how is she tolerating the modified dose? She's around now cycle seven. It's time for me to repeat another scan very soon. What's her state of mind like? She feels great. She really did. She went on a couple of trips here, as I said, and she's looking forward to this summer. That's why I don't want to make any major changes until she does what she wants to do. Taboo? I would leave her at the current dose and continue where you are. I think that capacitabine for the preferences that she had is totally reasonable. In fact, it is the one FDA-approved agent for anthracycline and taxane-exposed patients. So that certainly, as a single agent, would have been probably my first choice as well. Joanne? Absolutely agree. I think I'm going to put you on the spot, Joanne. What's the CALGB study adjuvant trial comparing capecitabine to either AC or CMF, an elderly woman, going to show? I don't know. We'll have to ask Hi Mus, who's the PI for that study. And it's a wonderful study although it's, I think, been hard to accrue to. And they did have some problems with dose, and I think they had to modify the dose. But I think it's an important study, particularly to explore regimens in the elderly, because we have so many more older patients, and they metabolize drugs differently, and quality of life issues come up, and we want to come up with the therapies that are least toxic. You've done certainly some of the most important work in capecitabine. Do you think there's a future for capecitabine in the adjuvant breast setting beyond this study? Is there some way to consider integrating it with the other available agents, or do you think that's not going to happen? I don't know. I think this trial was the big trial. I mean, it's a 2,500-patient trial, and it should answer the question whether it adds to the benefit of docetaxel. I think, though, the fact that the Mexican study shows comparability of Paclitaxel combined with capecitabine versus docetaxel combined with capecitabine, that those two arms are really parallel. That really doesn't make any difference which taxane you use in conjunction with capecitabine. And so I happen to prefer the other regimen because I think it's more user-friendly and it's better tolerated and you can preserve quality of life and all those other good things. So if you're going to use a doublet and you don't want to use paclitaxel, gemcitabine, or whatever, and you don't have a Vastin available, then that seems like a very reasonable combination. It's a Alan? large community-based study. Do you have any experience resecting liver metastases? Is there any role for that? I have one patient. She had seven-year disease-free interval between her original breast cancer and her metastatic disease. She had a single liver metastasis. I gave her Femora, and she had progressive decline in the liver lesion. It kept getting smaller. She was a Jehovah's Witness, 
So she ended up getting radio surgical approach. And now out from that, all you're seeing is the scar from the radio surgery. I don't know how much of that's disease or not disease. How long has it been? It's been about a year. And we've been following, but kind of slowly. She's still on the femora? Yeah. So that's the only patient that I've ever gone after an isolated liver lesion. But I thought the natural history was so protracted and she was having such a good response. And I thought it was reasonable. I hear a lot of community docs bringing up this question because we've gotten so tuned in to resecting and ablating liver mets and colon cancer that I think it's increased people's sensitivity, although certainly it's not the same disease. No. And I would only do it on someone where there was a really possible potential for a long natural history. Leonard? Would you do it with more than one? No. No, I wouldn't because I don't think there would be a survival advantage at all. I've heard capecitabine described as step-down from hormonal therapy on the way towards IV chemotherapy. What kind of dose do you normally utilize, and do you change that in an older patient? You do change the dose in the elderly. I usually pick about 1,800 milligram per meter squared as a total dose. If they have renal dysfunction, then I'll go, of course, lower. But in a younger patient with normal renal function, I'd probably start at 2,000 per meter squared total dose. But in an elderly, I started about 1,800. Joanne, can you comment a little bit on NAB-paclitaxel, which is something you've studied? Well, first, in terms of the 9840 CALGB data showed a benefit for weekly paclitaxel. Initially, the trial was at 100 per meter squared. That was too toxic. The dose was dropped to 80 per meter squared. And that was straight without a break. But in clinical practice, I'll use 80 per meter squared weekly times three, off times one. And you have a relatively low neurotoxicity rate with that, although in the published series it was a bit higher. The comparison with napaclitaxel is that we did two studies. One study was looking at 100 per meter squared weekly times three, off times one. The second part of that study was at 125 per meter squared weekly times three, off times one. In patients who had progressed despite a prior taxing, and that could be either paclitaxel or docetaxel, it could be any schedule, Q3 week or weekly, or any other schedule. And the response rate for both groups of patients, the lower dose and the higher dose, was about the same. It was about 15%. There was a clinical benefit rate of about 35%, a little higher in the 125 per meter squared dose. But the 125 per meter squared dose had a cost, and that cost was more peripheral neuropathy and more neutropenia. So in heavily pretreated patients who have progressed despite a prior taxane and you want to still give a try of a taxane, nabpaclitaxel is a reasonable choice. The Gratishar data was a direct head-to-head comparison for taxane-naive patients of the 175 per meter squared for standard paclitaxel versus 260, and it was superior for the nabpaclitaxel arm. So you have those two regimens that you can use. I prefer weekly. I think it's better tolerated. And we know at least from the CLGB data that it's more active. So I prefer that when I use paclitaxel. What about combining NAB with other agents? And the first I want to ask you about is capecitamine, because you studied capecitamine and paclitaxel. Can you comment on what you saw there and whether you see a future for capecitamine NAB? Well, capecitamine NAB paclitaxel is being studied. They're probably going to be quite comparable, I would expect, to our data on paclitaxel and capecitabine, but we don't know that. The data that we have was at paclitaxel weekly at 80 per meter squared 
days, one and eight, and Cape Cytobine at 825 per meter squared BID, so 1650. And their response rate was 50%, and the clinical benefit rate was 65%. This was in about 55 patients. These were relatively treatment-naive patients. They were almost all frontline metastatic. And these were in the taxate-naive subset. Now, there's several other trials that have looked at this type of regimen, although not weekly. Gratishar looked at Q3-week paclitaxel with the same dose of capecitabine, and they have virtually identical response rates, and they were also frontline metastatic patients almost exclusively. There's another trial that's really an interesting trial, and this was updated at ASCO, and this is from Mexico, and Turicellus is one of the authors. The current author was a different author. It was one of the abstracts at ASCO, but this trial looked at XP or XT. Taxotere, okay? So either Zolota paclitaxel or Zolota docetaxel. Or it had a sequential arm, which was capecitabine, then followed by docetaxel. So it looked at three sets of patients, reasonable numbers. Response rate was better for the combination arms, but time to progression and overall survival were virtually identical. So this is one of the first really good trials that has actually head-to-head looked at this question of combination versus sequential. The O'Shaughnessy paper looked at combination docetaxel, capecitabine versus docetaxel, clear benefit, three-month improvement in survival. There was another trial that was presented at ASCO from Sarajevo, Bosnia-Herzegovina, and they looked at taxotere docetaxel followed by capecitabine versus the combination. And they showed that there was a benefit to the combination, both in overall survival, time to progression, as well as response rate. So maybe there's something to the sequence of which drug you give first. That's the only way I can explain these two disparate studies that were right next to each other in a poster session, that the Mexican study doesn't really show an improvement in survival for the combinations versus sequence, whereas the European trial does. But it may make a difference between which drug you give first. My whole take about this area is that it should be patient-driven, patient-preference-driven, and how you think about the burden of disease. So if they have a lot of disease, a lot of visceral predominant disease, and you think they're going to die before they get to another drug, then you should use combination. And if you think that their biology of their disease is more indolent or their burden of disease is less, then sequential therapy makes perfect sense. And you now actually have data to argue from. You can argue from it either way, but you can argue from it. Dibu, what's your take on that, and how do you integrate the concept of bevacizumab into this whole paradigm? Well, I think there may very well be a reason to use drugs together if you can show synergy and a clear benefit from using combination versus sequential, but I agree with Joanne's comments in that at this point in time, we don't have clear data of any drugs, maybe with the exception of Herceptin combinations with chemo, and even there, we don't have formal proof. So whether bevacizumab is going to fall into that category, I can't say. I think that as soon as bevacizumab is approved, I will probably be using it more in first-line therapy. I'll probably restrict it to taxanes for now until more data are out. And we do know that bevacizumab as a single agent doesn't have much activity, although most of the data there is in refractory patients, but the response rate is under 10%. 
So I think for that particular combination, it makes sense to use it together. And also, the theoretical underpinnings as to how some of these anti-angiogenic therapies work, according to work by Rakesh Jain and others, is that it may actually normalize vasculature and improve drug delivery. So it would make sense then that most of the activity is going to be in combination with chemotherapy. How do you approach the selection of a taxane or the metastatic setting? And would you combine any of the three available taxanes with bevacizumab or just paclitaxel? I tend to slightly prefer paclitaxel anyway. I think that most of the studies that have looked at both of these agents would suggest in aggregate that the tolerability is a little bit better. I think the activity of docetaxel is slightly better when you compare the Q3-week regimens, but now that we have data showing that weekly seems to give better response rates in time to disease progression with paclitaxel, that really has become my favorite taxane regimen. So I think you can use either. I think they are going to be interchangeable. I think from a quality of life perspective that the weekly paclitaxel, especially with a break, three on, one off, makes the most sense. And that's probably going to be the one that's mostly used with bevacizumab. Quick comment about the bevacizumab data because the Ribbon 2 trial will be answering these questions because what the Ribbon 2 trial is looking at patients who are second line who then you can give any drug with bevacizumab. So it's going to look at docetaxel, nabpaclitaxel, capecitabine. capecitabine. So it's going to look at four different drugs. It's not every drug, but it's a bunch of drugs. And so that trial, I think, will be very important in answering this question, is the benefit of bevacizumab restricted to paclitaxel or is it a general benefit? So I'm looking forward to the Ribbon 2 trial. In terms of how the drugs stack up, paclitaxel and nabpaclitaxel, we have the data. I think there is an advantage to nabpaclitaxel in the sense that you don't need to use steroids and it takes less time to give. One thing we've learned is that all of these drugs are very similar. They're more similar than they're different. And you pick one more based on toxicity than out of a general big advance in benefit. And we know that at the adjuvant level, and we know that really at the metastatic level. In the adjuvant level, we have the Sperano data to tell us that it doesn't matter which taxane you give, and it doesn't matter which schedule. So you pick the one that's the best tolerated. In that trial, it was the weekly paclitaxel, which was best tolerated. So that trial was, for me, an eye-opener, because before that, there were hints that perhaps one was better than another, and maybe in hormone-responsive disease or hormone-unresponsive disease, there was some relative advantage. But that trial answered that. At least so far, it's answered that. So there's no difference early, and it's dealer's choice. You pick which one you like the best and what the tolerability is for that patient. If you had a patient with a lot of neuropathy, then maybe you'd steer them towards nabpaclitaxel. If you had a patient who hated steroids, that might be another reason to do it. If it were cost issues that were driving you, you'd pick the cheaper one. Alan? Just to follow up on the combination of Avastin with other chemotherapy drugs, I've heard the argument made that our experience with other malignancies is Avastin just seems to work nonspecifically with whatever drugs you combine it with. And GI malignancies, that seems to be the case. So why shouldn't it be the same with breast cancer? I guess we'll wait and see. I don't know the answer. I think the the problem was because we had the capecitabine trial, which was a negative trial, not completely negative, but mostly negative. So we really do need to know if there's a selectivity of one drug versus another. Maybe it does affect the egress of one drug better into the tumor than another. I don't know. So I look forward to this. I think that trial will give us a real answer. 
Dr. Question. Well, I wonder what do you think about the fact that in the E2100 trial, the time to progression on the tax cell alone on the control arm seems shorter than we might expect, six months. So when we're looking at evaluating the paclitaxel bevacizumab data, I mean, it's a good study. It's not a huge study. But are we looking at an arm that maybe the control arm performed in a substandard fashion? I think it's very hard to compare arms from one study to another because we really are looking at shifting populations. Modern trials today in the metastatic setting that are first-line therapy studies generally are involving patients who have had a much higher percentage of them have received anthracyclines and taxanes. So Mm -hmm. I think their natural history is simply different. So even though we always question why the response rate is lower, the same thing goes for the very recently reported capacitabine versus capacitabine lapatinib study where the capacitabine time to progression was quite short. And again, that was probably a more modern cohort that reflects more heavily treated patients in the adjuvant setting. My understanding was the taxol alone arm actually was exactly what they expected, which was about six months. And according to George Sledge, quote, it hit right on. And of course, that was increased substantially with the bevacizumab. I mean, is it your take, Joanne, from a clinical point of view, not just research and numbers and curves, that at least in that study, it was a significant clinical benefit for the patients to add in the bevacizumab? Yes, I think it is. Have you utilized it in any breast cancer patients? One patient. I used a metronomic, it was the Halberstein protocol applied to this patient. So I used this oral cytoxan and oral methotrexate with Avastin. I'm waiting for the trials. We will have ribbon two and ribbon one open, so. I know I asked all of you, I wanted to chat a little bit about bevacizumab because there is such little clinical experience out there in practice right now because of the lack of FDA approval and reimbursement. And I'm curious if anyone wants to kind of share their experience in terms of taking care of patients. I think, Rich, you said you took care of a couple. Yeah, I had a patient who had metastatic disease. Most of her disease was initially cutaneous, and she went through a series of different hormones and eventually progressed. And on reevaluation, she had evidence of visceral disease, and she had really what I would have considered a hormone refractory patient. And it was beginning to get some GI symptoms, and we talked about going on a taxane. She was a very, very educated patient, and she said, you know, I heard about Avastin, and I said, this is one trial, and we went through the whole thing. And before we even initiated it, we got approval because of the cost issue, and I treated her, and she's had three months of it, and we scanned her two weeks before I came here, and she responded, and she responded with her visceral disease. She's had essentially no toxicity except for epistaxis, which apparently is common, and she clearly clinically responded. Her abdominal symptomatology, which was relatively subtle, is resolved. And her chest wall disease is resolved. And I'm not a marker person, but this was somebody who did have disease, metastatic disease, that seemed to correlate with her markers. And her markers have halved. And she's doing fine with it. And I wonder if there's a component of the disease itself that you're seeing it in. And then talking to my GI colleagues, I was that much more nervous giving it to her because the major manifestation of her disease was intra-abdominal, and so far it's been fine. And I guess you just see breast cancer. Of course, a lot of the docs here are seeing everything and are used to using bevacizumab with colon cancer. What was the quality of the epistaxis? How much of a problem was it? It wasn't the kind of thing where she was in the emergency room getting packed, but it was a frequent complaint. She said, what do you think about the nosebleeds? And I hear that frequently from people getting chemotherapy, especially during the winter, and it's dry, but that was the only toxicity at all. How about hypertension? A non-issue. I actually checked the 24-hour urine once because I was nervous at two months and there was no proteinuria, so I haven't checked again. 
Alan? I've just started my first patient with metastatic breast cancer on an Avastin combination, but what's made me reluctant is uncertainty about what the side effect profile is going to be with this drug. I mean, there are serious toxicities and then things that we may not have heard about. At ASCO, with the ovarian patients, there were unexpected GI perforations, and there are increased risk of strokes in some other studies. So that's what's made me a little bit reluctant to start using this drug, in addition to the cost issues, but it's really a toxicity. Yeah, I agree. We talked about it a lot and the lack of experience and whatnot. And, and again, she was one of those patients who was very, very aware and very well read. And so I think she understood all the potentials going in. Debbie, this is a little bit scary when you start out with a whole new approach to therapy and some concern about that. My understanding is we have not seen bowel perforations in breast cancer. We haven't seen, obviously, the thoracic bleeds that have been seen in lung cancer. Is that your understanding? Yes, that's correct. The complications that have been seen in other diseases, I think, relate to the kind of surgery they're having or the nature of the disease, for example, ovarian cancer with its tendency to have peritoneal studying and the like. And certainly in the E2100 study, these types of side effects were very rare. Hypertension and mild epistaxis really were the main side effects. I guess the other thing is that from a quality life sort of side effects point of view, and again, you all have had more experience with this with colon cancer, compared to chemotherapy, it seems considerably improved. Dave? There's no question. We use a lot of Avastin in our colon cancer patients, and I can use it in the patients well into their 80s with pretty much minimal toxicity with adding it to Zolota or adding it to 5-Aphelocovorum. Have you had any experience with Avastin and breast cancer? I've treated one patient with Avastin and Abraxane. This lady's a long-term survivor, has gone through just about everything we've had available, first the hormones and then on to systemic therapies. She's been on it for about three months and has demonstrated in her lung a response, about a 50% regression. She's always had small pulmonary nodules. And did she have prior taxanes? She had both taxol as part of adjuvant therapy and taxotere years ago. Joanne, what do we know about prior taxanes and then response to subsequent taxanes such as NAB and taxanes plus BEV? Well, we know that patients who've had prior Q3-week taxanes can have a response to weekly taxanes, and that's been described independent of the NAB-paclitaxel data. Our own data supports a benefit in a certain number of patients, more benefit in those who'd had Q3 week than in the weekly when we've subsetted it out. And we didn't have too many people who responded to nabpaclitaxel who had progressed despite prior paclitaxel and docetaxel, especially when both were given weekly. But some of it depends on the timing out from the drug, and sometimes patients can certainly respond with different schedules. I guess the thing that was surprising, Debu and Kathy, Miller's presentation at the last San Antonio meeting was that patients who had prior adjuvant taxanes responded well to paclitaxel again with BEV. I think there had to be a minimum of a year, but I think the responses were even greater in that group, which was kind of surprising. That's correct. In that subset, the response appeared to be a little bit greater. I think the confidence intervals overlapped, so I think we can't really say that definitively, and I really wouldn't read too much into that at this point. Just to go back to Dave, what have you observed in terms of epistaxis in BEV? It's not uncommon. It's usually fairly minor. Like was commented by Rich, nobody ends up in the emergency room, but it is something the patients will comment about. How about the hypertension? We see it in about 10% of the patients. It's more people who are running close to hypertension beforehand, and it's been pretty easily controllable with standard medications. Rich? My understanding from San Antonio was at least the implication was based on the 2100 study and the prior Zolota studies that if you're going to use it, 
then it seemed to be more efficacious if you used it in somebody as of anything else who had not been heavily pretreated. Is that accurate from what you've seen and we've heard? The two large randomized trials in breast cancer would suggest that because the capocytobine study was essentially a pretreated right. population. And there has been a lot of speculation as to whether vascular physiology may have something to do with mm-hmm. that, that as a tumor grows and matures, that the vasculature also matures and doesn't express the same types of receptors and that antiangiogenic therapies are going to be mostly effective in neovasculature, which you would have early on, which actually points to maybe the hope of an even better effect in the adjuvant setting. 